Good morning. My name's Adam Richards, for those who don't know me. I'm one of the ministry staff here, and it's my great privilege to uh, preach God's word to you. So let us pray, and then we'll get going and looking at this great passage in Revelation where we see what God is doing in the world. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich blessings you give us. We thank you for gathering us here this morning for the great commissioning service, which reminds us of our goal and our desire to serve you and to serve others. We pray, Father, as we look at this passage and we look at what you are doing in the world and we see where you are taking history, we pray, Father, that we'll understand how our service fits into the big picture of things, that we might live for the sake and glory of you and live for the sake and glory of your Son who died that we might have life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am a bit of a strange fish. It's a great way to start a sermon, isn't it? I am a bit of a strange fish. My family used to grow up around the dinner table and we would talk politics all the time. We were just a family that always taught politics. So as an adult, I'm still interested in politics. And this year, being 2020, it is actually US election year. And you go, oh, well, you're going to talk about US election. I'm not going to talk about the one to come. I'm going to talk about the previous one. And one of the things I found very interesting about Donald Trump's election was just, and I know I've polarised the room just by saying this, and no matter how you feel about this, about Donald Trump as president, here is something that was undeniable. Before the election of Donald Trump in 2016, Everybody in the media knew that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I remember sitting down with my dad and I said, oh, he's got a bit of a chance. And my dad said, no, he's got no chance. Have you not read the New York Times? Apparently Hillary Clinton is a 90 plus percent chance of winning the election. It's over. And I said, oh, I don't think so, Dad. You're wrong, Adam. And I was just like, oh, well... It's nice to be back in the political conversation. I remember going to sleep before the US election and I was thinking, oh, I don't think I'm right. I think she'll win. And so much so was I even sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win that I didn't check the results the next day to see what had happened. So it was quite a surprise, and I don't think I was alone, that I actually learnt out, uh, learnt eventually, and it was about halfway through the day, that she lost. And I don't think I was the only one who was shocked to hear that was she lost. I remember seeing that in the US uh, stock market, that after, Hill, uh, after Trump had won, the stock market tanked, and it went down massively because Donald Trump was elected. And the reason for the decline was simply this. Everyone was so sure of the outcome. Everyone was sure this is where history was headed. Sure, there were some people who said, oh, Trump would, would win. And, you know, they all were on the Talking Heads TV. It's always nice to be a winner. But most people said, no, 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 he has no chance. And if you... Be honest, if you looked at the podiums of both the candidates the following day and as you watched their, their you know, after-election speeches, well, Hillary didn't even bother showing up, but Trump's podium, he knew he, he didn't think he was going to win 
either. Now, what is my point? It's not about Trump or Clinton. Truth is, they're politicians, they come and go. Here was the point that I'm trying to make. Everybody was absolutely sure they knew where history was headed. Everyone was sure and they responded thinking, Hillary's going to win, history's going to, this way, going to go this way, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to live in light of that history. And so they were shocked the next day when Hillary didn't win. They were shocked and had to change their plans because who's this guy? Trump's boorish, he's a fool. He's no way he should have won, but he did. Those controlling the main flows of information in our society were absolutely possible and they proclaimed it from the rooftops. Trump's got no chance. They were wrong. And that is one of the big lessons that that election told us. So many talking heads on our television, so many talking heads in our media will boldly and proudly state, we know history is headed this way. We know where life is going. Listen to us. Get on board with our message. We know where it's going. But that wasn't true. See, man always thinks he can control the future. Man always thinks we know the direction. Have you ever heard somebody ever say in a conversation, history is on our side? Have you heard that in the media? I've heard it many times. History is on our side. And what people are saying when they say history is on our side, they're saying this. I know where history is going. I know the truth. I know the future. And history will vindicate me. And you are a fool if you do not get on board. Well, here is the truth about history. History is on no man's side. History does not work for any person. There is only one being in all of creation whose side history is on, and that is God. The passage before us actually explains where history is actually headed. It actually tells us where history is going. History is not on any person's side in this world. History is on God's side. I hear so many people say to me, are you on the side of history? History is going to vindicate me. History is going to prove that I am right. And it's a false claim. Because history is not on our side. History is on God's side. History is working for God's purposes. The question isn't, is history on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? Because God is going to derive history towards his purposes and his goals. And as we look at this passage this morning, what we see is where God is driving history. We're seeing where God is taking the events and the purposes of this world. And he's saying, get on my team, get on my version of history, because that's the one that's going to work. That's the one that's going to happen. Men will tell you this is where history was going. Man will make its bold predictions. 
And God will say, no, I will frustrate those. And unless you're on this side of history, you are going to be the one who is wrong. So that is where we're going this morning. We're asking the question, where is God taking history and am I on God's side? Now, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Revelation and David reminded us helpfully, as we saw from Revelation last week, that all creation bows down and worships our creator. We read these words from Revelation 4. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. God has made creation for his purposes. God has made creation to suit his will. And John sees this majestic vision in heaven and he sees what God is doing and he sees all creation bow down. And all creation looks to the slain lamb who is the only one worthy to open the scroll that we saw last week. John was in tears saying, who is worthy? And he sees only the slain lamb. And then we see the first of these great seals opened. And we read this. Start of chapter 6. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. The horseman had on it, had on it, had a bow, a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. Jesus here breaks the first of the four seals. And he breaks all four seals in a pretty quick succession. And at the opening of each seal, a living creature comes out. And what comes out are the four horses of the apocalypse and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, we've all heard of the four horses of the apocalypse and how they're about the end of the world. One of the big issues you have when you read Revelation is actually one of timing. We always think, and I remember when I first, I first became a Christian and I thought, oh, I want to read the Bible. And I actually put off the book of Revelation because I was terrified that when I would read it, I would learn about the end of the world. And I just, oh, I don't want to read that because that sort of scares me. And I finally got around to it. I said, no, I'm going to read this book. And so I read the book of Revelation. I was like terrified, but I read it and I thought, oh, this is going to be so scary. It's going to be so scary. And I read it and I went, yeah, I don't understand any of it. (laughs) And that's the issue. You look at these symbols and you go, what is he talking about? He breaks a seal and out comes a horse. What's all going on? It's, It's kind of weird. And what the horses really represent are actually four judgments that are going out upon the world. And I'm going to explain them separately, but I want to deal with the imagery of the four horses just collectively. What's common to them all before I deal with them all separately? And the first thing that's common to them all is they're all horses. Why a horse? You know, I grew up on a farm. My dad had horses. They're all nice. They're pretty animals, except they kick and bite and come and tell me, ask me stories about that later. But why does he use a horse? Well, the reality is a horse in that day was a, com- is a complement to a tank. That's what a horse is. It's like having opening the seal and out comes an Abram's tank. And what God is saying here is, 
I am sending out these four horses to wage war upon the world. They are my battle tanks. And the number four, and why there is four, is they represent the whole earth. They are meant to go across the whole earth. And the four horsemen are four judgments that will come against all of humanity. I remember as a kid on TV, and I saw somebody on one of those silly programs that you see on SBS at times. I saw this person get up, and he was this preacher, and he said, here is what the book of Revelation is about. And I don't know why I remember this, but I do remember this. And he had a picture of the whole earth and he said, this horse goes to this part of the earth and this horse goes to this part of the earth and this horse goes to this part of the earth. And he had the earth in nice quarters and he said, that's the way the world looks. And I went, yeah, but that's only half the earth, isn't it? What about the other side? And that's the way people often think about the book of Revelation or they think about these Four horses, oh, where does this horse fit on this part of the earth? Is he in North America and is this horse over here in Africa? And that's not the way to read it. What it's saying is these four horses will be with humanity and across the whole world at all periods of time. There's no clear line or uh, line where they will end. It's not like this part of the earth will suffer from the white horse and this part of the horse will suffer from the red. No, it doesn't work like that. It's just saying they all will go across the whole world and judge the whole world. There is no particular place where these horses will be, but they will be everywhere. And that will be just part and parcel of living in the world. And so we look at the first horseman and we see the first horse and it's this beautiful white horse and on its back and on his back it rides a rider and this rider wears a white robe and he has a bow in his hand and it's a bow, it is a weapon of war. What the first horse represents is actually the conquering nature of humanity. It is that we will fight, we will destroy, we will battle that is the point of the first horse. What God is saying is, in our rebellion, the first horse will go out and he allows man's own sinful nature to go out and conquer and destroy. And as you look through history, that's what you will see. Man's warlike nature as he retakes and as he fights against nation against nation. Man seeks to rule one another, seeks to destroy one another, seeks to impose his will upon each other. In our modern times, we don't use a bow, we use a gun. Now you might think, well, we enjoy much peace in the West, and we really do. But the truth is, our peace comes down the barrel of the might of the US military. And I'm thankful for it. But I'm not going to delude myself into thinking or into claiming that it is a true peace, it is one that is forced upon the world through conquest. And this has always been part of the world. This horseman reminds us that sometimes, though, that peace that we enjoy will break down. There will be wars. There will be fights. Nations will fight against each nation. People will be subjugated. Our world is just littered with wars. That is what the first horseman reminds us and teaches us. The second seal reveals the counterpart to the white horse. And then another horse went out, 
a fiery red one, and its horsemen was empowered to take peace from the earth so that, so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. This horseman also represents war, but whereas the white horse represented conquest and destruction against nation, one nation against another, this red one stirs up internal strife. He creates division from within. That is, he creates political and civil unrest that all nations will go through. Civil wars, internal unrest of nations, that is part and parcel of what the Red Horse is doing. The political tensions that we feel in our country at the moment and throughout much of the West, the cultural wars that are taking place within the West, and we are within a massive cultural war within the West. Yes, there are no guns. It is a cold war, but make no mistake, we are in a full-fledged cold war, full-fledged civil war in this nation. It is happening, and it is being pushed by our cultural elites. And why are they doing it? For their own sinful gain? That is just part and parcel of what you will see. When you see internal strikes, when you see revolutions, when you see battles, that is man rising up, wanting his own desires. And nations are going to happen. There's going to be coups. And those coups will always come proclaiming the same thing. Freedom! What they really mean is, I should be the one in charge. The third horse speaks to another issue inflicting man. And I looked and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. The black horse represents famine. That is what he is. The words relate to the expense of food. A denarius at that time was a day's wages and a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley are roughly the daily intake of one man for one man but not his family. So basically saying that a man will have just enough money to spend food to uh, spend money on food for his wages for one day and for nobody else. Doesn't include looking after maintenance, doesn't look, include looking after the rest of his family. It just is enough just to get by. And what he's saying is there's basically just enough food and that food will become so scarce and expensive for some that they won't have enough to feed their own families. Now, the line about olive oil and wine is a little more difficult. But, and there's a lot of argument about this, but from what I read... What I think it's saying and what olive oil and wine need to actually be made is time. That's the key. Because olive oil and you know, grapes are not that much expensive to harvest, but they take time to make. And what it's saying is, even though a lot of people will be starving, even though there will be lots of famines in the land, the rich will be able to survive. The rich will care for themselves. The rich will look after themselves. And that is what you see. Where there are famines, you notice, never notice that the powerful and the rich are looking after themselves. They're never hungry. I remember years ago doing, a, doing a, some research for a sermon 
and I looked at all the reasons for famine in the last 50 years and it was a nice big long list of famines and the reason and at every line the reason for famine was simply this war every time except two which were drought man is inhumane to his fellow person to his fellow man the rich will always take care of themselves and this passage is reminding us that we just don't care and that this is the judgment of God. God is giving us over to our judgment and that when famines come, who will it disproportionately affect? The poor, as it always does. It's always the weak, those who are powerless, who struggle when tough times come. And this leads us to the final one. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. This horseman, the horseman on it was named Death, and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and and by the wild animals of the earth. This final horse reminds us of the final plague, and that is Death. It is unescapable. It will always happen. It will be indiscriminate. There will be all types of diseases. There will be all types of sicknesses. There will be wars and famines, and it will not stop. Disease and death are just part of man's existence. You know, what have we had just recently? The coronavirus. My... My kids have been a bit worried about the coronavirus. But if you look through history, it was the Black Plague. World War One, at the end of the World War One, Spanish flu killed 20 to 40 million people. It's AIDS, it's cancer. There are just successive waves of sickness and of death throughout the world. And what the horseman reminds us is that the God, through his judgment, is actually systematically and just indiscriminately killing. We are under the curses of these seals. They represent the judgment of God upon the earth for his rebellion. People think the horsemen represent the end of the world, and in a sense they do. But they have been roaming the world since the time of Jesus' ascension. And they will not stop. War, famine, pestilence, death. They are just part and parcel of man's existence. They explain the injustice we see. Man's ruthless subjugation of his fellow brother. The natural chaotic judgment which flows out of the rejection of the creator. The horsemen ride throughout the world, leaving their mark of death and destruction in their wake. If you don't believe me, just look at the news. I don't watch the news anymore for two reasons. One, basically, it is just clickbait. It is just there to get our eyes to see the next piece of material so that the advertisers can get their 
all the TV shows and the movies can get, and the internet can get its ratings so they can get their advertising and eyeballs equals money and that's what the news is about. And so most of it's just a beat up to get viewers. But second, as I look at the news, this is what I always think. Oh, God told us to expect this. God told us to see this. Why am I surprised? Life in a sinful world will always be problematic. The events on the news are portrayed as a shock. Can you believe that this happened? And there's been some terrible events just this week. Think about the family up in Brisbane where the father doused his family in, in petrol and then set it alight, killed himself, his wife and his three children. Horrible to be expected. It is hard when you look at the world and think, why are these things happening? Why do we keep seeing this death and destruction each and every day? It's because we have rebelled against our creators, because we have rejected our God. God is sending these curses to remind us, you are not in control of the world. You are not in charge. History is not working towards your good purposes or your good desires. History is not on your side. You need to look for another reason for history. You need to look for another purpose. That is what the four horsemen are about. They're about getting the world to take their eyes out of their, off their own navels and look up and see something. Look up and see. This isn't right. The four horsemen scream the world isn't right. That's what their job is to do. And given that's the case, we go, okay, well, Christians, it'll be all better for us because we know God. He's on our side. Well, he should be on our side. So therefore, everything will be just rainbows, unicorns and Skittles. We'll have fairy floss. We'll be able to eat pancakes. Joe's going to come down and Andrew's going to make waffles. Thanks, guys, every week. And it's all going to be great. That's what it means to be a Christian. Can't wait. That's what Jesus is about to say. He opens the fifth seal. Let us read on. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the, the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Here's the truth. And this is what the fifth seal reminds God's people. We might think, well, we'll get through the judgment. We'll get through the war. It won't be a problem. It won't affect us. But here's the truth. Like the rest of the world, God's people will be caught up in the judgment of the world. How? Be and why, really, more importantly, because God's people serve as a witness against man's desire to reject God. 
people in this world hate truth. People in this world hate truth. I used to think that, and I really did believe this, I used to think that people only didn't know the truth. If someone only just quietly got beside them and sat down and told them the truth, then they'd be happy to listen. And when I first started ministry, I thought it wasn't that people really were rejecting the truth, it was that they just didn't know the truth, that they were ignorant, and they just needed someone to come along and gently instruct them and gently teach them, and then they just, yeah, okay, I've I've just got this wrong. I'll happily come along and follow Jesus. And we'd all sing Kumbaya, we'd have a little campfire, I'd have marshmallows, it'd be fantastic. Joe would be making pancakes and Andrew... It would be that was what I was looking forward to. That's gone out the window. One of the things I've learnt, and I've learnt this, the Bible teaches it, but I've learnt this from personal experience. People hate the truth. And the reason people hate the truth is simply this God is truth. And that people have rejected the Creator and they've rejected his teachings upon the world and they are actively rebelling against it so christians come along who teach the truth and say here's what you need to know it's not always going to go well it is not always going to be easy no one is silly enough to actually admit i'm going to fight the creator no one will tell you i'm in active rebellion against the creator of the universe that's not the way people think Though that is the truth, what they will say is, ah, you're telling me a message I don't like. You're not from God. You're not representing the truth. You just hate me. So I have the right to shoot you or kill you. The reality is of this passage, and this is what the blood of the martyrs is teaching us, this is this. Christians will always suffer for the truth. We don't get a pass. We don't get a look over as Christians. No, we will be killed for standing for the truth. Our world does not want to change. And the truth was, as I remember my life before becoming a Christian, neither did I want the truth. It does not want to believe it has done anything wrong. So they will persecute those who say, hey, you need to change. Hey, you need to turn, repent and put your trust in Jesus. That is part and parcel of the world. Most martyrs will never know their names. We might think of some big ones like Polycarp, who was John's disciple, or one of my personal heroes is Athanasius who stood for the truth, who was ran out of his church, I think, four times for standing for the truth, and possibly five. And you look at that and you go, wow, that doesn't seem to be Christian. That doesn't seem... Why isn't God actually doing something? And God is, I am. I am caring for my people. I am hearing their cries of anguish. And I am listening and waiting to pour out my salvation and my judgment upon the world. And there'll be guys you'll never hear. There'll be ladies you'll never hear. I remember the guys on the beach who had their heads cut off because they were Christians by ISIS. If you look at the figures for suffering 
and martyrdom for Christianity. 75% of all religious persecution in this world, 75%, that's three quarters of all persecution that happens, happens against Christians. Now, I bet you that's not something you'll hear in the media that often, and most of it at the hands of Muslims. But you also see religious persecution against Muslims. You'll see religious persecution against Hindus. You'll see Hindus against Christians. You will see atheists against Christians. You'll see Muslims against that. You will see religious persecution. That is part and parcel of it. And my point here is not to draw sympathy for Christianity. My point is this, and it's simply this. That is what we're told to expect. This is what we're told will happen. Christians are not excused from humanity's war upon the truth. Instead, we are going to bear the brunt of it. Don't be surprised when your boss says, hey, you're a Christian. I'm going to actually bar you from a promotion. Don't be surprised when people denounce you and call you a fool. Don't be surprised when you see Christians killed for what they believe. This is normal. God has told his people this is what's going to happen. And God allows the persecution of his people. And he does it as a judgment against the world. Which leads to the sixth seal. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God rise up from the east. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we see, till we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. Here, what God is saying here is, I am restraining the final judgment and the final end of the earth. Why? So as to bring in the whole church, so as to seal all of my people. Now, we see 144,000 sealed with God's seal, who are saying, these are my people, this is my group. And I don't have time to go through all the options of what all the 144 stand for. What I think it stands for is simply this. It signifies the church and it signifies the church arranged in battle order. And what God is saying is, I am going to organise and set up my church to go out in the world and proclaim my gospel message. That is what the church is for. The thousand, it's just a big number. And it's just saying, I am going to raise up people from everywhere, across the world. And they are all going to gather and organise for my proclamation, for my glory. It's actually a reflection back to Exodus, where God put the, nation, uh, put the tribes of Israel around himself and set them up for battle formation to head into the promised land. Organisation and churches, it's a normal part and parcel of the world. Why? Because we need to organise things. We need to get things together. We are in a battle. We think 
Life should go well. We, we live in a great country, and I'm not knocking Australia. I love living in Australia. But you can think, wow, life should go easy. It should be simple. And what this passage is saying is no. Life will be a battle. There is a war taking place. And what we see in terms of that war and the death and destruction and the plagues we see are but the symptoms of what is really happening spiritually. Man is in his rebellion against God. Man is fighting against God. But God is saving his people and organising them to go out and not use guns, not use swords like the world, but go out with the word of God and with prayer. We are being called to go out as soldiers. That is what this passage is reminding us. We carry a book and we say, here is the word of God. It is powerful. Repent. Believe this good news. That is why I find the phrase history is on our side so interesting. Because history is on no man's side. History is on God's side. God is driving history towards his purposes. Take the same-sex marriage debate. Man has declared, declared God's purposes for marriage invalid. And it's not the first time man has done this. We can think, oh, I can't believe man has done this. We do it all the time. In 1917, the USSR declared God's purposes for marriage, said, you don't need to be married. Sleep around. Do what you want. It'll be okay. They did that in 1917. In 1944, they changed the law back to being married. Why? Because they were having no babies and their population was going down. That's the truth. You can look at this and think, oh, I can't believe, has God lost control? No. God has never lost control and never will he lose control. History is being driven towards his purposes. Those in power will always think we can defy God. We can shape history. We can change history. And they never learn. History is really this. As you look at the history of the world, this is what you'll see. And this is what it is. It's a basic recounting of man's continual failure and his rebellion against God. He gets it wrong time and time again. And then we forget about it and we try it again. And I can tell you now, the same result will happen each and every time. But this is where God is taking history. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Here is the image and here is the place that God is driving history to the gathering his people in heaven around his throne. That is where history is going. That is where God is driving it. That is why he has organised the church. That is why we preach the gospel. That is why we serve people. That is why we go out 
and see people come to know Jesus because we look to the great day where we'll all be gathered around the throne of God and we'll declare in one voice, worthy is our God, our Lord and our Saviour to receive worthy, to receive power, honour and glory. Why? Because he has saved us and delivered us from our rebellion. It is a great picture of God. It is a wonderful picture of where God is driving history. It is where history is headed. God is directing history towards his purposes, towards his goals. As I look at creation, as you look at Revelation, you see all the churches and you see all the different things. And as you look at those seven churches, the one church that really stands out to me is the church to Laodicea. And the reason the church to Laodicea stands out to me is because it's neither hot nor cold. It's not really going anywhere. And as I think about the church of Laodicea, I think about a piece of fruit. And you go, what do you mean a piece of fruit? I like eating apples. But there is nothing worse than eating a powdery apple. Have you ever got a powdery apple and just went, and you just spit it out? That's the church of Laodicea. Neither hot nor cold, just, and as I look at all the different churches, Ephesians, which Christians or people often say we're most like, the one that actually reminds us most, I think, and we are in the greatest danger of, is the lukewarm church. So Australia is a great country. We have so many nice things. There are so many distractions, so many good things. And I don't want to knock those good things. They are good things. But they take our time. You've got to remember, wealth breeds complacency. Wealth breeds complacency. And so as we see where history is headed, we can get, oh, I won't worry about that, I'll get distracted, I'll go over here, I'll go over there, I'll do this, I'll do that. And what this passage reminds us is, no, history is not working towards your purposes. History is not working towards your goals. History is working towards God's church, towards God's people, gathering around his throne. And here's my challenge. If you know where history is headed, if you know where it's going, are you on God's side? Are you working towards that history? It was interesting at the end of the service, Joe asked us, are we going to serve? Are we willing to serve? I don't know if you stood up. I was sitting down the front. I hope you did. But what are you going to do about that if that was you? What's going to change? Are you going to walk out those doors, have some lunch, get in your car and go, gone? Or are you actually going to go, no, actually, this calls on me to do something. This calls on me to actually change my life. I'm going to now spend the next three hours reading my Bible and praying, and I'm going to do that every day. If that is you, I'm glad you said it, There is no way you're going to do it. (laughs) Here's what you do. And here's my challenge to you. Spend either five minutes a day doing something 
either reading your Bible or praying or something towards godliness or 20 minutes a week. Find that time. And you can go, yep, I'm going to do that. And then here's the real challenge. Find someone who will hold you accountable to do it. I warned Joe. I didn't warn Dave. I warned Joe and Dave. I warned Joe. And I'm going to say to Dave, I'm going to spend 20 minutes or half an hour with my son Ben and Nat on Tuesdays reading the Bible and praying. We've already decided to do that. That is going to be my next spiritual step. And I'm actually asking Dave and Joe to hold me account, to ask me, have you done that? And not to do it out of guilt. If they say, did you do it this week? And I go, no. And they say, quick, let's crack out the logs, let's have a little campfire. <laughs> if they start saying that, you'll see me running down the road. Um, Dave will probably catch me. Um, <laughs> it's not about guilt. It's about accountability. And if you say, if the person who's holding you accountable say, oh, okay, that's okay, how do you think you'll do it next week? Have you thought about putting plans in place? If you do it out of guilt, it will not happen. It is about actually seeing where history is headed and going, I want to get on board, I know where it's going, I want to do something about it. If you do it out of guilt, it won't happen. So don't do it out of guilt. Do it out of a sake and a desire to actually realise, now this is important. I know where history's headed and I want to do that. As we look at the passage, it does remind us that history is on God's side, that history is directed towards God's purposes and God's plans. We can so, in Australia, get distracted by so many good things and this is my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Be purposeable. Think about, I need to do this. Do not actually go, okay, I need to sort of make this happen, but I don't know. You need to actually sit down and you need to go, I need to make this happen. You need to think about these things, otherwise they won't happen. If you make no decision, every decision will be made for you. I used to say that to my students all the time. When you make no decision, somebody else will make the decision for you. And here's my call. Make the decision for God yourself. Choose to follow him. Choose to see where he is going and actually make the time to make that happen and get on board. And just find five minutes a day or 20 minutes a week extra to do that and be encouraged to do it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the rich blessings you give us. We do thank you that you are in charge of history, that you are directing history towards your purposes and your goals. We know that history is directed towards the gathering of your church in heaven. And we know, Father, that that is where our life and all creation is going. We ask as your people, Father, that we will be people who are directed and have a great desire to actually be on board and to actually work towards seeing that vision come about. May we be reading our Bibles, may we be praying, may we be serving in such a way so as to bring you praise and glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.